Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. On today's special episode of the CMO Podcast, I am partnering with the Association of National Advertisers, better known as the ANA. The ANA is the largest trade association in the marketing and advertising industry. 110 years old, and it represents 25,000 brands and over $400 billion in marketing spending. Its mission is simple and important, to drive growth for marketing professionals, for brands and businesses, and for the industry. During this quarantined summer, I hosted three virtual sessions for ANA senior members, focusing on the two hottest topics on the minds of today's CMOs, and we know this from research, how to build a digitally savvy organization, and how to effectively excel in the C-suite. We had 100 CMOs from B2B and B2C companies attend the sessions, and I've invited four of them back to discuss their learning, and more importantly, how they have applied the learning. Today's panel includes Marissa Jarrett, CMO of 7-Eleven, previously at Dean Foods and Pepsi, Lynn Pina, CMO for GeoBlue, an innovative provider of insurance and medical services for international travelers, Andrea Sangara, Head of Marketing U.S. at Campari and previously SVP at Moet Chandon at LVMH, and Vikrant Batra, CMO of Hewlett Packard HP, the company that gave rise to Silicon Valley. Now, here is my special panel discussion with these four CMOs and ANA senior members. Welcome, Marissa, Lynn, Andrea, and Vikrant to this very special edition of the CMO podcast. It's so good to see all of your faces. And for our listeners, the backgrounds on our four guests today are wonderful. But I have to say, Andrea gets the prize. She has the coolest Negroni Campari background, all beautifully lit. It's making me happy on this Friday morning as we record. So listen, this is an audio uh, session, of course. So I want each of you, because we have four of us, to introduce yourself with your name, your role in your company, and one big highlight of your summer, personal, professional, whatever it might be. So I'm going to start with Marissa. So can you lead us off here? Got that name, roll a highlight of your summer. Absolutely. Hey, Jim. My name is Marissa Jarrett. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at 7-Eleven. And one highlight of my summer is we a celebrated 7-Eleven Day, which as you might know is celebrated on July 11th. Celebrated 7-Eleven Day differently this year. Uh, Rather than invite 9 million of our friends and customers to our store on one day, which as you can imagine would create some challenges with social distancing protocols, we actually pivoted and invited our customers to join us all month long to get a free Slurpee to celebrate our birthday. And it went off great. Our customers loved it. Our franchisees loved it. And it kind of extended the summer fun. So that that's my one thing. Fantastic. I have to ask you what this has been a weird summer, of course. What has been your best selling item this summer? Is it any different from what it's been other summers? Oh, um, in addition to like the typical things you would expect, like cold beverages when it gets really hot during the summer, 
Um, we've sold a lot more take-home size items than we typically do. So people are actually shopping 7-Eleven more like they would a small grocery store. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Lynn, we're going to bring you in. So name, role, company, your highlight. Okay, yes, yeah, sure. Hi, Jim. Uh, my name is Lynn Pina, and I'm Chief Marketing Officer at GeoBlue. And uh, we provide health insurance for people who live, work, travel, and study abroad. Um, I'm going to go on a more personal note in terms of my highlight for the summer. Um, I've, I made it a challenge for myself to read more books this year. And uh, that's been one of my uh, highlights of the summer is just being able to use a lot of the downtime, being able to spend some time in my yard and really getting into a lot of great books. Um, and it's just been really fun to escape a little bit from what's happening around the world and dive into somebody else's life and experience through a book. What was your favorite book this summer? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I guess I'll mention one that just automatically came to my mind, and it's probably not um, what people would think. It's, um, what is the name of the book? It was about a pandemic, and I thought it was appropriate mm. to read about a pandemic. It's um, Station Eleven is what it's called. Um, and sometimes it seems like books like that might be depressing, but I actually found it um, to be very uplifting and giving you a lot of good perspective about how to look at your life and what's happening around you today versus someone else's experience. So you, you have great insight into where people are traveling. So what is happening right now? Where are people starting to travel to? Um, well, so obviously travel is down a lot. Um, and our business is actually a mix of both travelers and expatriates on assignment for um, companies. So the expatriate um, part of our business hasn't changed that much. You know, people tend to not leave assignments around things like this. Definitely short-term travel has had a huge impact. Um, probably the biggest thing we've seen, not so much in terms of where people are traveling, is how far out people are booking. Um, so we are having people buy our insurance products for trips that are, you know, typically they would be buying for a couple weeks, a couple months out, and they're buying for nine months to a year out. So that's probably the biggest change we've seen in behavior. Well, that's, that's optimistic. That's good. Yes. Okay, let's go to Andrea with a beautiful Negroni background. Hi. Yes. So Andrea, please introduce yourself to our gang. I wish they could um, see your background. Hey, everyone. Andrea Singera. I lead the marketing team at Campari. We have um, around 50 brands, so not just Campari, where we make beautiful Negronis in addition to Campari sodas and other wonderful drinks, um, but also Sky Vodka, Espelon Tequila, a Wild Turkey Bourbon, um, a Grand Marnier, Aperol. Um, so in terms of uh, my favorite summer memory, I'm going to go with something personal as well. I think, yeah, you know, being in this work from home situation, I have just really enjoyed being able to, at the end of the day, uh, come out of where I'm working from uh, upstairs in the, in the home office and spend time with my two very young children and be able to go outside, run around in the sprinklers with them and just spend some more time than I normally would have where I'm usually commuting for, for a good period of time. And just spending much more time with them, enjoying the simple daily life summer items. It's, it's been simply rewarding. So tell me this, our, our listeners might be interested. What was the biggest cocktail this summer? And what do you think will be the biggest cocktail going into the fall? I'm going to go with the Aperol Spritz. So very popular, has been growing quite considerably over the last few years. So that's um, Aperol and Prosecco in equal parts with a splash of soda. Um, going into the fall, people tend to move into a little bit of darker spirits. So uh, Negroni week is coming upon us, hence my background. That's September 14th to the 20th. Um, people also tend to move into, you know, the scotches or the bourbons, which have also been doing quite well. So the whiskey category, um, you know, wild turkey, long branch, I would say, is one that I would highly recommend. It's one that we've partnered with Matthew McConaughey on. So it's rather new and people are still discovering it. Um, but that's, those are typically popular options for the fall. So the secret to the uh, great Negroni is? The secret to the great Negroni is ensuring you have the right amount of Campari, which is um, of equal amounts with the gin that you put in. I'm being genuinely serious because some people sometimes think of it as a modifier and you don't need as much, but you need the right amount for it to taste as delicious as, um, as a Negroni can be. Um, and then obviously you add your sweet vermouth to it. Vikrant, you're going to bring up the, uh, the rear here. You have a re really interesting backdrop also on Zoom, so you may tell our <laughs> listeners about that. Then please introduce yourself to everyone. 
I will, Jim. Um, Vikrant Batra, I'm the Global Chief Marketing Officer for HP. Um, uh, I, th I think my background represents a, you know, a cafe in Asia. I haven't traveled in over 185 days, so uh, missing visiting my teams in the countries where I used to be every month. So um, anyways, um, yeah, so uh, it's, you know, for me, a big highlight of the summer Um Actually, it's funny. I have a I have a ten year old and a nine year old. Oh, sorry, a, a a ten year old and a thirteen year old, and um, for about a year now, I've seen them playing this game. It's a card game called Magic: The Gathering, which is an old game that um has been around for a while, but has caught fire in the last few years. And I used to look at this game. I used to look at them playing for hours and going, I don't get it. I just this is there's thousands of cards and they're collecting and it's a strategy game and and I learned to play it this summer and so I've been playing Magic the Gathering with them and um, it is uh, it is a highly addictive paper card game which is which is great um, and it's it's been fascinating they they um, they kick my ass every time but it's still been a lot of fun. <laughs> so I have a big question for you before we jump into our two big topics today. What what do you think will be the biggest non-obvious change in Silicon Valley post-COVID? Yeah. You know, it's um the biggest one. I think that and 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 this may sound a little controversial, but I I think that um I think Silicon Valley is um starting to um uh, think about um, the human impact a lot more um, after COVID. Um, and I think it's not just COVID, but I think it's, um, it's, it's, the, um, it's, it's everything we've been dealing with on racial inequality uh, and everything we've been dealing with on, on um, social justice. And I think through COVID and through that entire, um, you know, from starting from May through now, uh, I'm I'm starting to see uh, most companies in Silicon Valley really starting to question everything they're doing um, and and look at it from a different lens. And I think it's it's high time for that. Well, that's optimistic. Yeah, it is. And I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Well, we may get into some of that in the next uh, few minutes together. Listen, thank you, the four of you, for, for, joining, for joining me today. I think the topics we're gonna to talk about are gonna be very useful and very interesting for our audience. You, were, you attended the ANA CMO forums. Now, it's about, been about two months ago, so we've had a little time between those forums and this discussion, which, which is deliberate, because we wanna get you talking about some of the things we talked about, you learned, and you, you may have applied. But before we get into the two big topics that we explored in the CMO forum, I want you all, and I want all of you to answer this question, I want you to share with our listeners what was the biggest takeaway, the biggest insight, the biggest aha from the forum? What struck you from this experience with the other CMOs when we were together in a, in a virtual session eight weeks ago? And and maybe I'll start with Andrea on this one because you have such a good backdrop. So what 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 you know, as you just helicopter up from this, what was the one big note you took or the big action you took, if anything, you know, following that that really, really great session we had two months ago. I was very inspired by uh, Frank Cooper, who spoke, the CMO of um of BlackRock, and he spoke about his experiences. Uh, navigating the C-suite and how he built really strong relationships with the CFO and his other colleagues and how he adjusted, how he um, framed his marketing challenges and to ensure that he, he drove the right level of understanding um, to secure the objectives uh, that he was trying to secure. So instead of talking like a marketer, the big takeaway was don't talk like a marketer, talk like a CEO when you're speaking with the C-suite. I think that was my big takeaway. He gave a vivid example, which I can't recall off the top of my head, but when he gave it, he said, you know, if I was talking as a CMO, this is how I approach it. When I adjust and talk like a CEO, this is how I sell it. And, and I said, oh yeah, I talk like a CMO. I need to change and talk like a CEO um, when I'm approaching my, my conversations to drive that agenda forward in the most powerful, effective way. 
Have you uh, applied that in your daily work? I have. I have. Um, and I notice a difference, but I have to do it consciously. Um, and I, I do. I try to consciously take that approach as often as possible in, in those conversations. Um, so, yes. Very good. Uh, Marissa, why don't we jump to you? Your biggest aha or takeaway? Yeah, I'd echo Andrea's comments. I mean, the idea that we are marketers and so know your audience and adjust your your marketing or your communications to the audience in a way that's going to best connect with them and influence them. And that's especially true for the C-suite and in particular for the CFO and the finance organization. So um, Frank's comments resonated with me as well. Um, I think it's Jan Schwartz from LinkedIn was one of the the participants of the podcast. And on the day of our podcast, I guess LinkedIn published their white paper on how to you know, more effectively communicate with the C-suite and in particular with the finance function. And I immediately took that work and have started to incorporate it into what um, um, I've started to, the relationships I've started to build at 7-Eleven. And so one simple example of that, that is actually uh, mentioned in that white paper is helping the finance organization understand marketing through the lens of the P&L and the balance sheet. And this idea that you drive the business or sales overnight, but you build the brand over time. And so even just the discussions I've had in the last two months with my finance partners and with the CFO using this analogy has started to shift their perception and understanding of, of me and my team as strategic thought partners. So it's been very effective and we are just, just getting started. Fantastic. Vikrant, I'll move it to you. You know, I think, um, I think it was a similar aha, but it was a little nuanced. It was, um, I kind of walked away um, realizing that most marketers in my, um, uh, on the session I was in um, were, were feeling, um, were feeling almost like marketing um, had something to prove on the, on, on the C-suite table. And, and it was, um, uh, it, it was almost like we gotta we gotta prove something every week. We gotta we gotta um, hold on to our or the strength of our voice on that table, and um, and and you could you could hear the concern across um, uh, across uh, everyone, and I felt like um, you know one of the um, one of the big ahas for me was um, I think similar to what Andrea said, which is. I think before you become a CMO and when you're a senior leader in marketing, you're thinking about marketing and you're thinking about, hey, I need to get this done. This is my role. This is my marketing. And when you look at the C-suite, you're looking at it, looking at it from a perspective of brand growth, demand generation, but also from a perspective of, hey, here's sort of my gap in my budget. How am I going to get what I need to succeed? And I think the big aha on the as uh, you sort of go into the C-suite as a CMO, um, over time you realize that you're first an officer of the corporation and then you second a CMO. And so I think what Andrea said about you know how you speak or what I think Marissa was saying about how you position things, I think um, I think it's that. Um, it's something you start to do a lot more, but also um, you start to see what the corporation's objectives are, and then how can you start to move marketing? Is it a cash flow in in Q two, or is it a profit in Q three, and is it a revenue driver? And how do you shift? Where's inventory sitting right now, and where do we need to move? Which markets and which countries? And I need to. You start to look at it in a different way versus your single-minded marketing way, and I think that's to, to be. To be aware of that and to to take that as an input versus always, you know, I want to make sure my seat at the table and my voice in the table is strong. I think that's a big, that was a interesting thought process after that meeting. Yeah. Do you have any uh, new ritual or piece of advice for for others yeah. about how you're trying to take your game up in that space? Yeah, I think that we're in such a dynamic situation right now. Um, and I'm sure, I know most companies are. Um, we are as well, right? Between um, between demands spiking in certain categories, demands dropping in certain other categories uh, in in the mix of your portfolio, uh, and then you add to that 
the country and the geographic layer ups and downs, and you add to that supply chains ups and downs with components. Um, and I think I think the biggest advice is um, just be dynamic and what's what's required. You know, we we track week to week, uh, and you got to go back and you know. Just the other day, we had a conversation about uh, sort of redoing our plans um, for three months out in almost every country because of where we are with inventory or where we don't have inventory and, and, and to be dynamic in that way and look at it more as, um, Hey, you gotta, you gotta be fast. You gotta change. You can't hold on to say, Hey, our planning is done. I'm not moving a thousand marketers to change your plans. Don't we got to And, and I think this is the time to be, to be fluid and, and move with the organization. Very good. Okay. Lynn, you're going to wrap it up. Your your major aha takeaway from the session? Yeah, uh, a lot of similar things to what the other participants mentioned. I guess uh, kind of piggybacking on what Vikram was saying, I think, you know, one of the other things that really stuck out to me was in order to have these conversations with others in the C-suite, marketing really has to really understand the business and understand the needs of other areas. And I think also um, find a way to make what marketing does relevant to other areas. Um, and I think, you know, to the point he was making about, you know, when you come into marketing, you're there sort of representing marketing. And I think, especially when you get to the C-level, you're there to represent the business. Um, you're not there just to represent your area. Um, you know, obviously you're bringing the lens of the marketing um, through it, but you've got to be looking at the business holistically. Um, and that really does come from, you know, just like we would do in terms of any other thing we do from a marketing perspective, really understanding the business, because then you can understand how marketing applies to it and also how you can enable the rest of the organization with what marketing is able to do. So I think for me, that was one of the, you know, it's something I sort of knew, but I think it was a really good reminder about how important that is. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Now we're going to go deeper into uh, two topics you're already addressing, really. You know, we did some research, you know, before these sessions and the two areas that most people are wrestling with are, you know, the first one is they're both evergreen, but the first one is how do you build a forward-looking, modern, digitally savvy organization? I mean, it's incredible. We'll probably be, be talking about this forever, but that that was topic number one we explored. And topic number two was navigating the C-suite. So we're going to tee up topic number one first, and that is how do you build a digitally savvy organization? And if you can remember, we had a few guests joining us, and I asked them, how do you know it when you see it? You know, what's it look like? Uh, when you walk into an organization, how do you know that they are digitally sophisticated and savvy and forward-looking? So I want you to talk a little bit about that session the kinds of things that went through your head, some things you may have taken back to your team, uh, some ideas you may have gotten, some inspiration you may have gotten. And Lynn, I'm going to start with you. You just closed out our, our, our opening question. But let's talk about the, a digitally savvy organization and what are some of the things that you took away from our ANA session? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Um, and you know, I like how you said we're going to be talking about this forever because I think that reinforces the point that this is an ongoing thing. I don't know that you ever reach uh, an endpoint um, as it relates to digital. And I think a big part of that because is because I think when we look at digital, I think it's important to look at the customer experience. Um, and I think understanding the customer experience and knowing the customer journeys is really critical because I think a lot of organizations, like every business has lots of legacy technology and that always creates challenges. Um, and then when you start wanting to sort of create silos and put things into different um, buckets and not looking at the journey end to end and trying to understand what your objectives are. That's where you end up with technologies that don't talk to each other, where you create uh, friction when you're actually trying to make things more seamless. So for me, I think, you know, one of the big takeaways and one of the things we as an organization have been trying to do is 
not just looking at digital for digital sake, but digital in relationship to the customer experience and what we're trying to do for customers at any given point at any given journey. Um, and I think the one other thing I would mention is, is really looking at your platforms. Um, again, you know, we're in the insurance business and um, I'm sure just like every other business, there's lots of legacy technology that, you know, you're sort of inherited that isn't really fit for purpose for what you're trying to do um, in today's world as it relates to digital, as it relates to digital marketing um, and really understanding like what are your foundational platforms that you need, especially around um, your CRM, especially around being able to get a 360 degree view of the customer instead of uh, especially around trying to optimize and create omnichannel experiences. Um, and so I think for me, those are sort of the two things, the customer experience and then really looking at your platforms and starting with that to make sure that you build the right technologies for your future. Mm -hmm. For your customer, your consumer, what's the biggest friction? <laughs> the healthcare industry is not known for um, being the most seamless and um, smooth experience for most customers. So uh, it's really difficult. I would say probably the biggest thing is where the biggest pain point for most customers is around claims. You know, I mean, that's what you buy insurance for. You want to make sure that at the point of uh, need and when you want to file a claim that it's easy to do so and it's easy to get reimbursed. So that's probably one of our biggest, I, I think the one unique one for our business, because we are um, in the business of helping people when they are abroad, trying to access care. That's our other big point of um, another moment of truth, I would say, for our for our customers is, you know, I'm, I'm abroad in a foreign country. I don't know the language. I'm, I wake up in the hospital. I don't know the, the quality of the care that I'm getting. And I need to make sure that I'm in the right place and I'm getting the right level of care. Yeah. Vikrant, you're in the middle of all this. Obviously, your company helps companies in this area. And you yourself are trying to get better and better. So I, I think your perspective would be interesting. Is there anything in that session that you you thought was noteworthy that you took back from it that you uh, that that you that you applied? Yeah, I think um, you know there was the conversation was uh, was a very interesting one for me. Um, I think the biggest takeaway and something we've been thinking a lot about as we've been on our journey was there are so many components of it, and you've got to think of all of them. Um, and so there is, yes, there's the technology and the architecture and the platforms component, which is, um, and, and which, which, which is the foundation of everything you do. Um, there's also a process component um, in terms of sometimes you've got a clean sheet, create a whole new blueprint of the process, especially in, um, you know, in, 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 corporations where the cross-functional teams are in a matrix structure. Now, how is this going to flow? Um, because that changes with platforms um, you apply, as you apply the customer experience. Then um, you're, as a marketer, your content has to change completely um, through a digital transformation. Um, and, and that's another pillar. You have to look at it. You can't have an architecture and a technology and a process and you're using the same old content of way of talking to customers. So that's got to change. And I think the one thing that I, it was an interesting conversation we were touching is um, we don't think about our people um, and the skill sets have to change um, and the training you do on your people and the marketers and you can, you can put a new platform and a new technology in place, but if 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 people don't know how to use it and and you haven't really spent the time and energy to train and 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 go through a you know rigorous training through the entire process on on platforms on process on content um and not just you but your partners um as well in the ecosystem um it it to me it was it was you listen to all the conversations around all these areas and you go well it's you got to do all of these pillars. You can't just do one or two um, for success. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, during COVID, this uh, need to create different kinds of content at different pacing and for different experiences uh, is is on top of mind for everyone. And so many people are doing it now inside. They're not outsourcing it because of the need to be fast and has to be authentic and genuine and helpful. So, I I, I think that's one mega trend. It is, and I'll 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 give you I'll give you one example. So um, 
you know, of course, before COVID, we were, you know, we're, we we sell a lot of laptops and we sell a lot of um, personal technology. And um, one of the big shifts we made, and, and I got to give credit to the teams that happened very quickly, was um, content that looked at most products we sold and said, how is this product or this bundle going to help you learn from home? As a um, you know, as a as a mom who's trying to buy something for children who are suddenly at home, so what's the laptop you need? What's the monitor you need? What's the keyboard you need? Uh, which is the one that's going to have the best sound? Um, and and if you go suddenly working from home, as in you're now not going in, and you're, how do you talk to an IT manager to say you suddenly have five thousand people working from home? What's the most secure? And and your security just blew up because now everyone's on their personal Wi-Fi's. What's the best kind of equipment? So you shift in in terms of what the need is, and and it's not about repositioning; it's about sort of re-messaging to what the where the need has shifted, and and making sure that the solutions you're putting out there are the right ones for the moment. And so that that's uh, that happens fast internal if you've got an internal engine running it. Yeah. Now, Marissa and Andrea, I want to tee up a different question for you. One of you is a retailer and one of you is a consumer products person. And I want to ask you, this crisis that we've been in for the last six months, you know, how has this helped you in some ways accelerate your efforts to be a more customer-centric, digitally savvy, future-looking organization? So why don't we start, Marissa, with you? Thanks. Sure. Um, well, honestly, as, as Lynn and Vikrant both talked about that customer experience and understanding the shifting landscape of customer demand, that's really where it started for us is understanding what are the needs that we need to serve? How are they different? Pre-COVID, we evaluated our customer experience through the lens of convenience, value, and safety. And safety, just as an example, pre-COVID, would have meant a clean store, you know, lights in the parking lot, things like that, more physical safety. Post-COVID, it's much more of a hygiene focus. So is the store clean? Yes, but is it really clean um, in a lot of new ways? So for example, we have plexiglass shields installed. We have a whole new cleaning protocol installed in our stores. And, and that's, you know, by design to help us demonstrate to our customers that it's safe to shop in our stores. And then beyond that, they can also transact with us frictionlessly. So whether that's in our stores using their phone uh, through mobile checkout or ordering our products through delivery and getting it delivered in a contactless way. Um, you know, we had delivery pre-COVID, but during COVID that business quadrupled in size. And that's partially because of the demand. It's partially because we proactively leaned in during those March and April time periods and really shifted our communications across the full funnel um, to drive awareness about it. Um, so those are kind of two areas I think that um, have been really pronounced for us in the last couple of months. Andrea, how about you? You know, consumer products, 50 brands. Yep. How has the crisis in some way been a help for you to accelerate your business model? Yeah, it very much has been. I mean, there's that well-known sketch, right, that everyone has seen in terms of what has driven your digital acceleration. and um, this pandemic has definitely done that. The agility with which the organization moved to change budgets from more traditional channels to digital, to e-commerce driven, um, was at lightning pace, which was not sort of seen before. We cut timelines down in terms of what we would normally do for planning on programs by over 50%. Just the, the speed at which the organization moved, the openness of all members of the organization to try something different, try something new. There may previously have been, you know, sacred cows around what we do and we must make sure we do X, Y, Z. Things have changed. The world is different. Openness to testing and learning, key components of digital transformation, you know, minds wide open to that actively happening. Um, and then the results came in, you know, tripling our business in those channels. Clearly the customer behavior was there, but we were also investing and in activating there. We could see that return coming back. Um, and we had, now we had proven results and measures in this channel that we didn't necessarily have before at that scale. So it was, it was significant in terms of the opportunity to try new things, 
and prove new things. Um, so significant. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask all four of you uh, to simplify this, this area. And this is our last question in building a digitally savvy uh, marketing organization. What's one piece of advice you'd share with our listeners? If you could put it in one sentence, two sentences, you know, from your experience on this journey, we are all on from what we talked about at the A&A session, what you've learned from others. If you could just summarize this into one power thought or one you know, power piece of advice for our listeners to move forward on this, to be better at this, to learn from your experience. And why don't we start backwards? Uh, Andrea, you just had the floor. Why don't you jump into this one? And then I'll move to some of our, some of our other guests. Recognize it's a cultural shift. Um, so while there's many actual things and tactics that change, it's a potentially organizational mind sh- mindset shift that crosses all functions about how to operate, where to focus. Um, you know, Vikrant talked about upskilling the organization, upskilling your people, really thinking holistically about what this entails, how you're leveraging data, where that's coming in, how you're measuring things, um, how you're thinking about the business. So recognize digital transformation is a cultural transformation as well. And the most important thing in that cultural shift is? Ensuring all departments are on board and everyone's on board and understand their role in progressing it forward. Lynn, I'll move to you next. Um, Kind of building on that, I would say, I guess my piece of advice is really put the customer at the center of it and put a real purpose behind it. I think for our organization, you know, our company purpose is to simplify um, the international healthcare experience for our globally mobile members. And we really take that to heart. And I think when we can give people a purpose to rally around, it kind of sometimes removes a lot of that turf war that you get or a lot of the resistance you get in lots of different areas. And I think, you know, because our purpose is around trying to simplify things and putting the customer at the center, I'm not saying it's easy because it's, you know, often still an uphill battle. But there's a purpose that people can rally around. And I think that kind of also helps drive some of that cultural shift. Vikrant. My headline headline is get help. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't try to do it internally, just internally, like we can figure it out. I think think the lessons we learned, the knowledge we gained from, from listening to external partners, from people who were... You know, and, and, and nobody's really figured it out, okay? There's, there's pieces everywhere. Um, I think we had, we had to rethink everything. We had to question everything from our agency partners and who we worked with, too. Uh, but we got a lot of learnings from places like, even like folks like PwC who helped us tremendously in this area. So I think, you know, just get help. Don't try to solve it yourself. Marissa, bring us home. Yeah. At 7-Eleven. With a cup of coffee. Vikrant, I love what you said. My my advice is take a minute and capture the learnings that you have as an organization from the past six months, both in terms of your marketing learnings as well as cross-functionally, and use those learnings to refine your new normal plan and to um, update your crisis plan. Because we thought we had a crisis plan when COVID hit, and it probably wasn't as deep or well thought through as it needed to be. And I can tell you, we're ready now for the next time. Yeah. Super pieces of advice. I love it. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Listen, I'm going to move us to the second topic, and and that one is navigating the C-suite, which is kind of a weird kind of phraseology. Uh, This one had a lot of emotion in our sessions. And the first one that we just talked about, highly important, we all must do it, is table stakes. This one got into some interesting spaces, and we shared two pieces of research when we were together. One was from Deloitte, 
who has, has found that CMOs lack a tremendous amount of confidence when they are sitting with the C-suite. And the second piece of research we talked about, which was from Spencer Stewart, and, and this is research that said the most troubled relationship in the C-suite is the CMO and CFO. And it is a major barrier to CMOs succeeding. And one of the principal reasons CMOs fail and move on. So while this sounds maybe like a soft topic, navigating the C-suite and political, if you will, uh, it's not. It's fundamental to success of, of, of you as individuals and all, all CMOs and also for the business to succeed. So I want to start with, um, I'm going to go to Marissa on this and then Vikrant. I want to start with a very specific question. What did you think of that session? Were there any habits that you, you, you adopted? Anything that came to the front of your mind? Was there anything that any relationships you chose to focus more on coming out of the session? So, uh, so why don't I go to Vikrant to start that, and then Marissa? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, it was a great conversation. I, I was the I was in the one where Greg um, from Spencer Stewart was there, and it was a very insightful conversation. Um, I think that you know one of the things I took away um, as you thought of that, and we were we were right in probably the beginning part of COVID at that time when we when we had that session. And, you know, um, it was also a time when everyone was very excited about Zoom. And, oh, this thing is working. It's been seamless, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But I think one of the things you took away from that, the relationship piece, and then you come out and you look at look at what's going on is, I think Zoom and the way we are working now is efficiently working, but our relationships are becoming transactional. Um, we are going from meeting to meeting, which has a specific topic. The hallway conversations have ended. They're knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna let's grab a coffee for five minutes. I want to chat about something on the on on, on the on the floor." Those have disappeared, and so relationships are becoming more transactional. So you have to put in. Uh, much more effort to reach out and keep that emotional connection going. I think it's essential. Um, it, it's it's just essential, not just with the C-suite, of course, with, with your teams as well. But I think, um, especially with the C-suite, we've, um, you know, the more you can pick up the phone and just call or message and say, hey, let's chat for five minutes has become critical. And, 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 um, not just from a work perspective, even emotionally for us, it's like I we just need to have a conversation, and um, and so to to me, it sounds, it 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 sounds it it doesn't sound very sort of business relationship with the C suite, but it's 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 critical right now, and I I don't know how how much longer we're going to be in the Zoom mode, but I think it's a big risk. It's a big risk, and and um and and you know I remember years ago there was a. Um, you know, we we do an annual survey every year, and 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 when we started it, one of the biggest ahas was one of the reasons people stay at work. The biggest reason people stay at work because they say I have clo I have a close friend at work, and when you start to lose that, you're you're starting to get into some pretty bad territory. So, anyways, yeah, I was catching up on some business reading last night. I was reading the Fortune edition of the Global Five Hundred, and there was a big story about this exactly as you just. Uh, uh -huh. phrased it, Vikrant, and also about creativity, which is related. Yes. Right? Creativity is, seems to be suffering because we're not investing in these relationships and discussions and serendipity. So I think it's a big watch out for us. Yep. So Marissa, I'd like to turn to you now about anything that you took back, any relationship you focused more on after the session. Yeah, two things come to mind. The first is around empathy, and the second is around wiring the organization up, down and across so around empathy, you know, after our sessions, it just kind of dawned on me, like I had an oh, duh moment that my partners on the finance side, they're people too. And man, doesn't it feel good when you feel like you've got a partner, a thought partner in the business who understands what it is you're trying to do and who wants to work with you to help accomplish those, those goals. And so even just shifting my mindset to um, be more kind of empathetic, understanding oriented, wanting to learn more about uh, what what my finance partners are trying to accomplish and how we can partner together on those and how marketing can help support that work. 
um, has been a really helpful change in language and, and tonality and, and honestly in partnership with that organization from the CFO all the way down to the financial analysts and coaching my team to do the same has been quite effective also. Um, I'm, I'm still in my first year with 7-Eleven, so I'm still relatively new to the organization and many members of my team are also new. So we're building relationships and building credibility um, in the company. And so um, taking that approach has served us well, really thinking about like, how would we, how would we partner with this person? Much like how would we think about our consumer? What are their needs and how do we meet them? The second piece is the wiring up, down and across. And so it's not just about establishing a great relationship with the CFO and becoming a great partner together at the C-suite, although that is very important, obviously, but it's also wiring, as I mentioned, up, down and across, um, both in my organization as well as with the finance organization. So an example of how we've we've done that on my team is, and we started to do it before the podcast, but I felt like I had some frameworks and language after the podcast that really accelerated um, our work. But we've literally identified individuals in the fine across the finance organization at different levels who we can begin to reach out to, partner with, educate them on what is the marketing strategy and how does it dock into our financial goals and outcomes. And importantly, how is this different than what we've done in the past? We've invited them into the process of measuring marketing. So we've said very openly, hey, we don't want to grade our own homework. We'd like your partnership in doing that so that we can credibly demonstrate to the organization uh, the impact that marketing can deliver uh, to our shareholders and franchisees, et cetera. And that has been an awesome process thus far, and we are making great progress. Um, the CFO has been very complimentary of the work, and I don't want to speak too soon, but I, I want to say he's going to be an advocate here for marketing here in the next couple of of months as he becomes more familiar and comfortable with the, um, again, the measurement approaches and, and the frameworks and constructs of how marketing can be leveraged to drive the business. Fantastic progress. Lynn and Andrea, I want to tee up a different question for you. And I want this, uh, I'd, like, I'd like you to talk from your experience where you've had a particular success or challenge in your C-suite. You know, we talked about the CFO relationship being the most troubled from Spencer Stewart research. So I'd like you to share with our listeners, you know, maybe a personal story. Where have you had a, a challenge, a success? How have you, how have you overcome it? Have you built, have you, how have you built on some momentum? So Lynn, why don't we start with you at GeoBlue and then Andrea, we'll give you a little more time to think at Campari. Sure. Um, well, a couple of thoughts. So one, um, you know, I think it's um, interesting that conversation already about sort of empathy and, you know, the possibility that we're losing connections because of what's happening. And I think, you know, the first thing that kind of came to my mind was this idea of like, you know, never waste a good crisis. Um, I think in some ways um, for our organization, this whole crisis has um, brought us together more because we are spending a lot more time together crisis managing things. Um, so that's one thought. Um, in relation to a sort of my own personal experience, I think one of the, I mean, I've definitely had situations where I've had um, not the best relationship with other members of our C-suite. And my natural inclination when I don't have a good relationship with someone is to try to get closer to them. I think some people's is to withdraw and mine is to say, OK, what's going on here? Why are we not? What is what is the source of us not getting along? And generally, my my belief is usually people don't understand each other and they're not communicating well. And they don't have a language to communicate well. And they there's a lot of assumptions on both sides. And I've had that with a few members of our executive team. And, um, you know, one person in particular, I don't want to call the person out and say in case they end up listening to this. But, um, you know, it was someone that I was always sort of at loggerheads with. And I think a lot of it was because we were very similar. We were very outspoken, both of us very direct. Um, and I think there wasn't a level of trust there. And for me, I wanted to work really hard to build trust with that person. So I tried to understand Every time I was getting resistance, every time I was getting sort of what I felt was like obstinance or, you know, negative um, reaction from that person, try to first understand, okay, where is this coming from and assume good intent. That's actually something I say to my team all the time. Anytime we have a um, conflict with someone, assume good intent. So I started like, assume good intent. Now, why would this person be behaving this way? And then when I do that, it goes sort of back to the empathy thing. I think 
then it's easier to understand, okay, this isn't personal. This person is probably upset about this or they're concerned about that. Trying to understand their fears. And then how do I allay those? And then really talking to that person, like really getting to know them both on a professional level, but on a personal level, and also kind of showing what I can do to help that person and alleviate. I mean, a lot of things that people do, they do out of fear. So what can I do to sort of alleviate those fears and make it so that person trusts me more? And I think when I've done that, I've seen great results in this particular person I'm thinking of is now someone that, you know, I call up all the time to just talk. And I feel like I have a really good relationship. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have conflict. But when we have conflict, it's just like not a big deal. It's not like we get over it really quickly. I understand where it's coming from. So for me, I think it's about getting closer to that person and really understanding what's driving them. Great story, Lynn. Thanks for sharing that. Andrea, how about yourself? Personal challenge, success that you've dealt with that others can learn from? Yeah, I think a lot of the what I'm going to talk about builds off of what Lynn was saying. I think there's a lot of themes that cross over there in terms of how to how to manage conflict and manage differing opinions. I think my approach is very much about collaborating and listening and understanding different points of view. So going in with an open mind when um, when we have conflict. So some examples. Um, when I joined, I early on saw some opportunities to drive some change, but was very conscious of not wanting to drive change too quickly. Um, uh, and being sensitive to to the reasons things were the way they were, and um, what, how that would impact potentially different departments. So I made sure that I took the time to discuss it with, you know, with all all the different parties. But there was still conflict involved, as there usually is when one is trying to drive change. Because as Lynn was saying, it's um, some people are afraid of what that change can mean. Um, there can be a misunderstanding of maybe what the change is meant to do, why it's coming about, the intention behind it, the intent. So um, my approach has always been to spend time and you have to be willing to invest the time with um, with those people that you're recognizing there's conflict with. Um, make sure that you understand each other and connect on a non-emotional basis. So you connect on what what is the objective here? Are we aligned on the objective and the actual vision of what it will actually achieve? Um, do we understand each other's concerns? What do we think is really important and respecting that and listening to that and finding solutions for what each other believe are critical parts of that process we believe need to be considered and included. And then the other word Lynn said that I'm a big believer in is trust. You have to build trust with your, um, with your other C-suite members. I think that's critical. Um, so however you are authentically building that with them. So they understand you're coming from a good place. So they know you have the best intentions of the organization. So they know you're listening to them. Um, we'll all ease the road um, as you continue to build relationships and want to try to drive change or potentially evaluate and discuss doing things in, in different ways. And perhaps they were done before, but for all the right reasons. Um, yeah. So there's been a lot of th common themes and what the four of you just shared, you know, trust, listening, empathy, uh, you know, coming, coming together, dealing with, uh, change, uh, dealing with conflict. So I'd like you to do on this topic, what we did for the first one and this area of excelling in the C-suite, navigating it. If there is one power piece of advice for our listeners from each of you in one or two sentences, and you've had a lot of it already, but if you could just sum it up with the big, big, big headline, what would that be? And Vikran, I want to start with you. Yeah, I would say um, put the problems on the table. You know, as Jack Welch used to say, embrace reality and have some real conversations to solve them. And I think, um, I think as real as you can get, um, I think you've got to be transparent, authentic, and 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 try to find that shared um, shared purpose in a way in every situation. Lynn, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to move to you next. <laughs> I might surprise you. Um, I'm going to say know your audience, you know, understand who you're talking to and where they're coming from and speak their language. Yeah, we talked at the session about speaking the language of business and people and not the language of marketing. Yeah, it's a powerful thought. Marissa. No silos. Um, you know, remember that especially in the C-suite, we are business leaders 
and bring your unique perspective to the table for sure, but uh, work with your partners to solve problems, to be thought partners, um, and to build the business. Super. And Andrea, we'll have you wrap it up. Build trust with with your partners. Yeah. Yeah. Super. Listen, we've spent some time talking about uh, building the organization for the future and navigating the C-suite. I want to sort of end where Vikrant started when I asked him the biggest change in Silicon Valley post-COVID, and he talked about humanity, uh, social justice, uh, caring for people more, and our, our, our role in society. I think I want to end with all of you talking a bit about coming through and out of COVID and what you are uh, hopeful about the role of your organization, of business in general, uh, of coming. So I think our listeners would be really, really fascinated. The time is right. And Vikran talked, you know, what he thought would come out of Silicon Valley. I'd like to go around the call right now and just have you share one thought that you are hopeful about, uh, about taking a stand, taking a point of view uh, with your company or with business at large. So I know it's a big mega question, but I think it's it's an interesting one and the time is right for it. So Marissa, you're laughing, so I'm going to start with you. I feel like I need another cup of coffee. <laughs> I know where you can get some. <laughs> I do too. And 7-Eleven delivers just in case anyone right. needs a fresh cup. Um, so I don't know if this will be the big, big mega, mega thought, but I would tell you This crisis has reinforced, underscored, put a pin on how customer needs change. And they don't change at the rate or the pace that we want them to (laughs) on the business. And so more than anything, how as an organization do we mobilize? Do we operate? What are our ways of working to respond and still to anticipate those changes? Um, You know, we've, we've really been in a responsive mode for much of the past six months, but we're very much entering a phase of how do we start to anticipate what this is going to look like and develop different types of toolkits or playbooks or approaches to meet that changing uh, shift in consumer demand. And as a retailer, the other kind of evolution I would say is it's not just about the products that we sell, but it's about what we sell and how we sell it. And the how we sell it is literal, right? It's both the physical place where we sell it. It's our digital platforms, but it's also our communication, our tonality, and our understanding of what those those consumer needs are, both functional needs as well as more emotional uh, needs. And so how do we meet those? That's something we don't have the full solution to today, but it's really inspired a new kind of awakening and, and desire to learn and understand and get better as we go. So in a positive way to maybe rephrase that or summarize that is empathy and agility as new core skills. And that that will be a more, uh, that will be a more effective organization and that will result in happier customers and happier employees. That's right, Jim. Thank you for paraphrasing that. (laughs) Well, I get to do that as the host. So Andrea, let's go to you next. Yeah, for me, it's about how we work, the organizational agility and embracing that. And the fact that we've had conversations on the executive team about how we want to keep that, making quick decisions, operating operating at that higher level um, is, is really exciting and encouraging and ensuring we as an executive team, and then we embed that as just an existing ongoing behavior throughout all of our teams in an ongoing way. I think it's resulted in smarter decisions, better decisions, um, and, and a more satisfied team in terms of being able to make decisions faster. It's been interesting to see that as well come back through us. But just that yeah. overall organizational agility um, and the willingness to, to test and learn as a part of that. I mean, pre-COVID, if you did any organizational survey in any organization, one of the top three issues would be the time it takes to make a decision. Yeah. And I think we're making progress on that during this crisis. So Lynn, a thought from you about coming through this crisis, uh, what you're hopeful about, what you hope, where you hope we see change. Um, I guess I would say, I think for me, two things come to mind. Um, one, I think it's taught us all that we're all connected. Um, and I think, you know, we should instinctively know that, but I think a lot of modern society makes it easy to forget that. And a lot of our culture, especially in America, makes it easy to forget that. 
Um, and then I would also say relate to that is it's all connected. Um, you know, all these things that are happening around us, they're all connected. And I think, you know, from our organization standpoint, I think about the things that happened um, right after the George Floyd killing. I think about everything that's happened around COVID, the kinds of conversations we've had to have at work that in the past people would think would be completely taboo, um, completely not on the table to be having at work or having at work. And, you know, we've definitely had people asking, why are we talking about this at work? Or, you know, even, you know, we've had a lot of conversation about ensuring the mental health of everyone at work and our employees, which we've had, we had a whole meeting about empathy. Um, and those are things, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, you would never be talking about at work. This whole thing with Zoom, where you're seeing everybody's families in the backgrounds and their kids and their dogs. I think that to me goes, I like that. I think it's good because I think we've operated too long where everything's in silos and it's kind of like your work is here, your home is there, you come to work and you're this person and at home you're a different person. And I think this whole experience is reminding us all that it's all connected and we're all connected. And I hope coming out of it, we keep that up because I think that gets back to the original point of putting the humanity back in work, putting the humanity back in business. Um, so for me, I hope that is something that continues going forward. That should be our final word, but we're going to go back to Vikram, who started all of this. I want to ask him the question about what Silicon Valley is, how's, how's it going to be different coming out of this? So do you want to take a summary comment of everything we heard from Andrea, Marissa, and Lynn, Vikrant, and take us, take us home? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, guys, what I'm hoping comes out of this, and, and um, I think it's beyond hope because I, I, I do see a lot of initiatives, a lot of good uh, intent and work happening. I feel this is the time for companies to um, uh, to go beyond the walls of their company. Um, I don't I don't think a single company's efforts alone will solve the problems we have, especially as it relates to racial inequality in this country. Um, but I think that um, you know. Um, the work we do as a corporation has to speak to broader social conditions outside of the walls of the corporation. You know, working in a safe and diverse and inclusive environment is necessary, but it's still not, that's not a sufficient condition, you know. It's, um, and, and I think companies have a responsibility. We have significant assets in our brand and our voice and our economics and our people that we can use to influence and create a different outcome. Uh, and I think that's my hope is, is, um, we we reflect what's happening inside each of our each of our companies. Um, you know, um, I think this um, this COVID and and social injustice and the and and where where social injustice has been raised um, in in everyone's eyes to reflecting and looking at what's happening, um, raising the awareness of the fact that no matter how good we think there it is microaggressions still happen um things like that still happen and and we have to go solve them and it's um i think beyond beyond looking at value of our share uh, uh, shareholder value we have to look at the values of our shareholders as well and i think it's it's time for us for companies to do that and i'm i'm very hopeful that not only silicon valley but but also um companies at large start to um start to act in a much bigger way that's a very hopeful thought and one that we probably should end on i'll give you one shot here before we sign off do you have anything for your host anything you want to ask me anything you want to ask each other before we sign off now listen uh this was a really really wonderful discussion uh i thank all of you and i think your thoughts on this last question about what what we hope happens in our companies and in society is uh, so rich, and your thoughts were so uh, good, optimistic, and important. So I, I thank you for joining us today, sharing your insights, getting to see each other again. I loved meeting you two months ago, and our listeners are really going to take a tremendous amount of inspiration and usefulness from this discussion. So have a wonderful fall. I hope you all stay he healthy and happy, and thanks again for coming together for this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank Take you. good Bye, care. Everyone. Thank you. That was my discussion with Marissa, Lynn, Andrea, and Vikrant. 
What struck me about this discussion was the importance of the relationship among CMOs. When you're a CMO of a specific company, it's kind of lonely. So it's so important they get together to share their experiences. And that's why the ANA is so important. They are the vehicle that brings CMOs from different industries together. We need to continue that. We need to continue getting to know each other and learning from each other. What I found to be the most powerful piece of advice and learning from these four today was the importance of getting out of your own space, asking questions, getting to know other people, getting outside perspective, asking people in the C-suite what's important to them, using external partners as you're building a digitally savvy organization, go to best in class, the power of curiosity, seeking to be better, learning from others, and listening. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.